Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to sit under the preaching of your holy word. We come now with confidence that this word comes not from the thoughts or the imaginations of men, but rather your prophets spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to give us what is truly the invaluable word of God. So give us a reverence for your word that we might receive it from your lips and humbly submit to it in our hearts and in our lives. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please open your Bibles to our sermon text, Acts chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 11. Page 909 in the Pew Bibles. We looked at verses 1 through 5 last time. We'll be focusing on 6 through 11 this morning, but we'll read all of 1 through 11. So here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the, ends, uh, to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Some people are remembered for their famous last words. And this morning we have the opportunity to look at Jesus' last words. His last words on earth, that is, because Jesus is a special case. I hope you remember that while the words recorded in verses 7 and 8 are extremely significant, they are by no means the last things that Jesus has said or done. As we saw last time, this whole book of Acts is the record of all that Jesus continues to do and to say after his resurrection and his ascension to his heavenly throne. It shouldn't be titled the Acts of the Apostles, but rather the Acts of the Ascended Lord Jesus as sovereignly decreed by God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit through his chosen Apostles, 
Last time we focused on the first five verses and we saw what Jesus focused on during those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. He showed himself alive to the apostles. He convinced them by many proofs and he instructed them about the kingdom of God. He also told them, do not depart, but wait in Jerusalem until you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now in our text this morning, we see that his instruction, his final command, it provokes a question from the apostles. And it gives Jesus the opportunity to respond with a promise. Here he details how he will build his kingdom through these, his chosen witnesses, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is immediately followed by his ascension, the climactic event by which Christ is seated on his heavenly throne. This passage is really the second half of our introduction to the book of Acts, laying out the strategic plan for all that is to come in the book, how the ascended Lord Jesus will establish his kingdom, which will spread through all the earth. So first this morning, we want to see how Christ commissions his apostles to build his kingdom. This commission, it comes in verse 8. It's both similar to and a little bit different from the more well-known Great Commission found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You know it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the Great Commission, it's given in Galilee. But here in Acts, we have Jesus' last words before his ascension. We know from verse 12 and from the parallel account in Luke 24 that Jesus ascends not in Galilee, but just outside Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. And so the Great Commission, it must have come sometime earlier. This final commission, it has similarities to the Great Commission, but it has many unique features we want to notice this morning. Perhaps Jesus would have given this last commission, these last words, no matter what, but it seems to be provoked by the apostles' question. Verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This question is itself a response to Jesus' teaching. As it said, he was teaching them about the kingdom of God, what he had focused on for those 40 days, as well as his promise of the Spirit. Now, many interpreters, the history of interpretation of this section, many say the disciples are misguided in their question. Calvin, for example, is particularly harsh in his critique of the apostles. He, he writes, there are as many errors in this question as words. And they argue the disciples are focused on the restoration of an earthly, ethnic Jewish kingdom. Whereas Jesus, as we know, has come to establish his spiritual kingdom that will cross every ethnic, national, and cultural boundary. That's what he says in verse 8. But I think more recent interpreters have vindicated the apostles to a certain extent. Notice that Jesus, he does not rebuke them. And it's also important to remember here that this is the very end of the apostles' training. If they still had a fundamental misunderstanding of the kingdom of God on such a foundational topic, the very thing that they're going to dedicate their ministry to from here forward, I don't think it would be corrected in a two-sentence response by Jesus. I think, if anything, the apostles are 
a little off course. Definitely they are overeager. But I don't think they are completely off basis, as some say. But notice that their question, it does reflect a strong faith in Christ. They have embraced him as their Messiah, their Lord, their King. And they've been paying attention to what Jesus has been teaching on the Old Testament. How all the scriptures have been pointing forward to him and will be fulfilled by him. Now, one thing isn't quite clear. Now, in traditional Hebrew thinking, the restoration of the kingdom, the outpouring of the Spirit, these are things associated with the last days, the last things. And they are thinking that now, that the Spirit is coming, the kingdom is here, perhaps the end is here as well. They know that Christ the King is here, they know that the Spirit is coming. But if the last days are here, does this mean the end is here, the final restoration of all things? But let's look at Jesus' response. Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus answers the apostles' question, focusing specifically on this question of timing, saying timing is not a question he's going to answer. But notice he doesn't deny the apostles' expectation that there will be a final, glorious culmination of the kingdom. In fact, we know from Jesus' teaching elsewhere that when he returns, he will usher in the kingdom of glory. He will restore all things. He says the timing of this is not for you to know. In fact, he has already told his disciples this several times previously. He states it most clearly in Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, because no one knows, nor can know that day, Jesus tells believers, be always ready, be always prepared. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Luke 12, 37 and 40. Now notice that Jesus makes clear, you don't know the hour, but the time is fixed. It is determined. The Lord has said it. He knows it. It will not change. But he has not revealed it. It cannot be known. And how foolish it is to try to pry into such things. If I can just say this as clearly as possible. It is outright disobedience to the Lord to concern yourself with any sort of date calculation or prediction or seeking some sort of Bible code. These sorts of things have led many astray. Jesus says the timing is not for you. But what is for you is to focus on the mission of building the kingdom until that day. Now, the structure of these two verses, it's almost a perfect echo of the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, 
that we may do all the words of this law. But Jesus, he doesn't exactly rebuke the apostles here. It's more subtle than that. There is a correction in that he says, focus not on this, not on the timing, but on that. Focus not on what I will do and on the date that my father has fixed, and which is completely out of your hands. Focus rather on the mission that I have for you. Now it is true that we are to pray. We are to follow the example of Revelation 22. We pray, come Lord Jesus. And we are to believe as he has promised, he is coming he is coming soon, soon in the sense of any, at any moment. Since we cannot know the day of his coming, the best way to be prepared for that coming is to focus on the mission that he has given us. And we continue the same mission that he's given to the apostles. And we see that mission here in the next verse, verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. As we look at this verse, the first thing to keep in mind is that Jesus is still answering the disciples' question. He is still talking about his plan for the kingdom of God. But this is now stage one of the plan, not the climactic culmination, but rather the plan for the powerful advancement of the kingdom through the witness of the apostles. This is how Christ will build his kingdom so that it reaches to the end of the earth. Before we go further, I do want to clarify one thing about our terminology. The terms, the kingdom of God, and the other term that the Bible uses, the, the church. Now, some interpreters, they separate these into two radically different things, but that's not the way the Bible uses these terms. Perhaps you have different associations in your mind between these two things, but really, they're referring to the same thing. Now, Jesus, he mainly used the term the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. He only used the term church on two occasions when he said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And also in Matthew 18, when he said, if your brother sins against you, go to him, take two or three along. If he still doesn't repent, tell it to the church. But then in the book of Acts, as many individual congregations are being established in many cities, then it starts to use this other term. It still talks about the kingdom of God, but then it starts to use the term referring to an assembly of believers. That's the term church. But it's really referring to the same thing, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of God in one place, the assembly of believers, the church. So don't think of these as two different things, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, or as it's seen in the church, universal, or as it's made up of individual assemblies, churches. Now returning to Acts 1.8, the Lord promises that the Holy Spirit will come upon the apostles and he will grant them power. This follows up on what we saw last time. In verse five, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he empowers the apostles. And this word power, it appears 10 times in the book of Acts. Sometimes it refers to miracles, that is works of power. Other time it is power for speaking, for proclaiming. 
In other words, his power for both word and deed, power to be witnesses for Christ. For that is the key role that Jesus sets out for them. They are to be his witnesses. And here, Jesus is using this term witness as a technical term. He's using it in the the legal sense. So we need to define it. What is a witness? A witness is a person who is able to help establish the facts objectively through giving an account of their verifiable observations. A witness is someone who gives a testimony of what he has seen and heard, and this establishes what has truly happened. Of course, the apostles, they will testify to the objective facts, the historical reality of what they have seen and heard concerning Jesus' life and death and resurrection, who he was, who he still is, for he lives, what he accomplished and what it means for each person that they speak to, what it means for you still today. And through their testimony, through their witness, the kingdom of God will go forth, it will powerfully expand. And this is exactly what we see as we continue to read the book of Acts, what we will see as we continue to study the book of Acts. Now the apostles, they must be witnesses. So in the next passage, when we see they'll seek someone to replace Judas, the one who fell away, they need someone who had been with Jesus from the beginning, someone who had been an eyewitness of the resurrection. Only someone like that was qualified to join with the other 11 apostles as a witness for this mission. Then moving forward in the book of Acts, this term witness, it is used almost exclusively of the apostles, Christ's hand-chosen, commissioned, authoritative witnesses. Now here you see that Christianity, it's not merely a philosophy. It's not a collection of abstract teachings. It is based on the historical reality about a real person, and it stands or falls on the objective truth of who Christ is and what he accomplished. And we see here that the Lord provides also a plan for the outward spread of the gospel, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, then to the end of the earth. As the Lord carries this plan out through his apostles, his witnesses, it effectively serves as an outline for the book of Acts. And so they begin in Jerusalem. They wait for the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit's received, and they remain there in Jerusalem through chapter 7 of the book. Then we read in Acts 8, 1, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And so then Acts chapters 8 through 12, it details the advance of the gospel through the provinces of Judea and Samaria. You do notice it took persecution to get them out of Jerusalem. The Lord may have told them initially they needed to go to these places, but he would need to providentially move his people along. We see the same thing with the inclusion of the Gentiles. He told them here, as well as in the Great Commission, the gospel must go out to all the nations. But when it came to the inclusion of the Gentiles, the Lord needed to carefully hold the hand of his people. He needed to gently guide them through this process. We'll see this in detail when we get to this in chapters 10 and 11. And then from chapter 13 onward, 
We have Paul's missionary journeys going outward from Antioch, going out to the end of the earth. But here we need to ask, what exactly does Jesus mean when he speaks of the end of the earth? This phrase isn't actually original to Jesus. He's drawing on an Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 49.6. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is a prophecy that Jesus himself clearly is he has and he is fulfilling. It's later quoted by Paul and Barnabas as justification for their mission to the Gentiles in Acts 13, 47. And so when you look at the original context in Isaiah, the end of the earth is referring both to the Gentile nations as well as to the furthest parts of the earth. It's, it's an all-inclusive term. And so when we look at the book of Acts, it's not so much that the end of the earth is fully accomplished by the end of the book of Acts, but the foundation for reaching the end of the earth has been laid. There is a, a climactic ending in the fact that by the end, the last chapter of Acts, the gospel has penetrated the heart of Rome, the center of the Gentile world of that day. And from here, it can now proceed everywhere. And so we see in the final verses it concludes with this theme of, of the kingdom expanding. We read in Acts 28, He lived there two whole years at his own expense, Paul in Rome. He welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And we have this sense that the kingdom of God is just going to keep going outward and outward. That's the conclusion but it's going to keep going from there. Now, I opened by calling this verse a commission. Perhaps you notice I also called it a, a promise. So there's a sense in which it is command, but there's another sense in which it is a promise. It is both. It describes what the apostles must do, but it's not actually stated in the form of command. It is in the form of a future indicative statement. Really, it is what the Lord promises that the apostles will accomplish because the Lord will accomplish it through them. Now, if I were to tell you that you will do something tomorrow, it may or may not happen. But if the Lord tells you you will do something, you know that it will come to pass. Now, you still need to do it. It will still require effort, the hard work, and all that, but you know it will happen because the Lord has said so. And so, of course, this is exactly what the Lord accomplishes through his apostles. The last aspect, carrying the gospel, advancing Christ's kingdom to the end of the earth, this is still the mission of Christ's people to this day. Now, I know that I've made the point that these original witnesses, the eyewitnesses of Christ, they were unique. But does that mean that we are not witnesses today? No, we still witness to Christ. But we carry forth the witness of the apostles. We point people to what they saw and what they heard and what they recorded. 
That's why, of course, when I preach, I proclaim the scriptures, what the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to write down, their inspired apostolic witness. And that is how we continue to carry forward the good news of Jesus Christ today. As Daryl Bach writes, the priority for the church until Jesus returns, a mission of which the community must never lose sight, is to witness to Jesus to the end of the earth. The church exists in major part to extend the apostolic witness to Jesus everywhere. Now that's not to say that you can't share a personal testimony, to say this is the way that Jesus has personally transformed my life. Your personal story can be very helpful. It's a helpful aid, it's, it's worth sharing with others. But the gospel that saves sinners will always depend on the historical person and work of Jesus Christ. And for that, you need the apostolic witness. You must go to scripture. You must tell others what scripture says, what the apostles saw and heard of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so as the Holy Spirit empowers us, we continue this work of advancing the kingdom to the end of the earth. As soon as Jesus gives this command promise, we see that he then ascends as the heavenly king. Verse 9. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. We get another extra detail from the parallel account in Luke 24. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. I don't know if you noticed, but I've been careful to say that verses 7 and 8 are Jesus' last recorded words on earth because we don't know with what words he blessed the apostles, whether that was with the high priestly blessing that I usually give at the end of our morning service or if he used other words to bless them. But he must have said something in his blessing, his final, final words before departing. The first thing to note here is his ascension is how prevalently Luke uses the language of sight. Twice in verse 9, as they were looking on, he went out of their sight. Then three more times in verses 10 and 11, we'll look at those verses in a second. As they were gazing, as they were looking, he speaks of what they saw. These words of sight, they're used five times in just three verses. The emphasis is that this is something the apostles very clearly saw they were eyewitnesses of something that truly happened historically. Christ's ascension is then described with two verbs in Acts 1.9. First, he is lifted up. Second, he is taken out of their sight by a cloud. Now, the way this is phrased, it gives the sense that the cloud itself, it bore him away. It was the vehicle for his ascension to heavenly glory. Now this cloud, it's not just reporting on the weather that day. It is no mere meteorological phenomenon. This is a manifestation of the glory of God. Now the Lord often appeared in a cloud all throughout scripture. 
For example, we see the pillar of cloud and of fire by which the Lord led the people across the Red Sea, by which he led the people through the wilderness all those 40 years. This was the same cloud that settled on the top of Mount Sinai as the Lord met with Moses as he delivered the Ten Commandments. Then when the the tabernacle was built and it was dedicated, the, the, the cloud of glory filled the tabernacle. Later, when the temple was built and it was dedicated, the cloud of glory filled the temple. Ezekiel saw the cloud of glory depart from the temple before Jerusalem fell and the people were exiled to Babylon. And then we saw the cloud again as it enveloped Jesus, Moses, and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And here it is once more, the cloud, the Lord's chariot carrying Jesus into heaven. Now Jesus went up. I don't think he went into outer space. Rather, he was physically transferred into heaven, the higher realm where the Lord God Almighty dwells. We might think of it as a different dimension, but I don't know if it really fits into our typical systems of of physics. Now Christ's ascension here, it is his enthronement. He now rules and reigns at the right hand of his Father on high. And because he is on the throne, we know that he is in control. And from there, he is working to build his church. And so we have confidence. We have no need to fear because our Lord reigns. And the account continues in verse 10. While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now this word behold, it gives the sense that these two men, they suddenly appear. And although they're simply called men here, they are parallel to the two men that also appeared outside the tomb at the resurrection. Their sudden appearance, their white robes, the message that they deliver all point to the fact that these are God's messengers. They are angels appearing in the form of men. And so the angels, they deliver a prediction. And just like Jesus' prediction of what the apostles would do, this is really a promise from God. The very same Jesus will return in the very same way he was taken up. Well, again, this isn't really news, for Jesus himself had said the same thing. It's the very claim that led to his crucifixion when he was on trial before the Sanhedrin. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Not only does Jesus predict here both his ascension to the right hand of God and his return with the clouds, but he is also making a reference to the divine and human figure from Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, it's no wonder that 
Upon hearing this claim, the Sanhedrin said, He is claiming to be God. This is blasphemy. He must die. It's true, Jesus was claiming this. It just so happens to be true. And he proved this by his resurrection, even more with his ascension, and he will prove it once more when he comes in glory. Now the angels say that Jesus will return in the same way he was taken up. This same Jesus will return in the same physical body in a cloud of glory just like he ascended. Now it will be the same in its basic outline. We also know there will be a few differences based on Jesus' teaching elsewhere. First of all, when he returns, it will be more glorious. Luke 21, 27. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Second, he will not come alone. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And third, his ascension was fairly private. Only a few apostles saw, but his return will be very public. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, Revelation 1-7. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, Matthew 24-27. No one will be able to miss this one. For this time when he comes, he comes to judge all the earth, and to usher in the new heavens and the, earth, the new earth. Like we saw earlier, no one knows the day or the hour. But the time is fixed. He is coming. And we don't see the apostles' response here in Acts. In the next verse, it simply says they return to Jerusalem. But in the parallel account in Luke 24, it says, first they worshiped Christ. Then they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Perhaps it took the, the angel's message to help them to realize what they had just witnessed. But then they couldn't help but worship. They couldn't leave without first declaring the praise of their God and their King. As I said at the beginning this morning, these verses conclude the introduction to the book of Acts Christ must first ascend and be enthroned. He must reign for us to begin the book of Acts, which records the history of Christ building his church. That's what the rest of the book is all about. Christ's heavenly reign, it gives confidence to the apostles. It becomes a, a key element in their preaching from here forward. For example, in Peter's Pentecost sermon, he declares, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Acts 2. We know that Jesus as King is overseeing every aspect of the advance of his kingdom. Now Stephen, the first martyr, he gets a glimpse of this. We read in Acts 7.55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And this was unique, this vision that was given to Stephen. 
But he saw how Jesus even stood up from his throne at this moment. I will discuss why Jesus stood when we look at this passage, but the point is that Jesus is involved. He is ruling over his kingdom, the church. Now, as we all, brothers and sisters, are called to continue this work, called to carry on the witness of the apostles proclaiming the good news that we have received, we do so with boldness because we know that Christ is above, he is on his throne, and he reigns. We do so with confidence because we know that through faith we are united to Christ who reigns in heaven. I love how Paul puts it in Ephesians. First in chapter 1 he says, he speaks of how God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. But then in chapter 2 we get the parallel applying it to us. When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So not only does Christ promise in the Great Commission, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, we can say the parallel as well. We are with him, spiritually united to him in heaven. And so, he is with us. We are united to him. He has given us his Holy Spirit. And all this is all that we need to go forth with confidence, to go forth with the gospel, being sure that Christ will build his church. He will use even the likes of us to take this gospel of the kingdom to the very end of the earth. And that means even here in Hackettstown. And so go forth with confidence. Go forth and speak of Christ, your Lord, to those that you know, knowing that he is with you and he will receive all the glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your glorious plan to redeem for yourself a people through your son, Jesus Christ. We can never thank you enough that you included us, that you have had mercy on us, that you have poured out your grace upon us. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who not only granted us the new birth and faith to embrace Christ, but continues to work in us, to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ our Savior. And we pray, Father, that your kingdom would continue to advance, that you would use us in that, strengthen us to be faithful witnesses for Christ to those around us. And would you be glorified in your church through Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.